Welcome to Footnotes, created by Francis Garrett, a professor of Buddhist studies at the University of Toronto. Footnotes is a series of short lectures on research in the field. Each episode features an article or book chapter from an academic book. We aim to make topics in Buddhist studies research freely accessible to students and the public. This is Francis. Today, I'm going to talk about Joseph Xie's book, Race and Religion in American Buddhism, White Supremacy and Immigrant Adaptation, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2011. I really recommend this entire book. It's such an important study of Buddhism in North America, and I think it should be core reading for every student of Buddhism. But today, we're just going to focus on the introduction and chapter three. Our music today is a piece called Runaway Friction Tester from an album called A Quiet Age. It was composed by Nick Bomarito, who teaches philosophy at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada. Nick does research on moral psychology and Buddhist philosophy, and he's the author of a book called Seeing Clearly, A Buddhist Guide to Life. In this book, Joseph Xie describes how racism and white supremacy have had such a strong influence on the development of Buddhism in North America, and on how we still understand and talk about Buddhism here even today. He describes how all the various forms of Buddhist practice that exist today in meditation centers, schools, or hospitals, for example, are actually part of a legacy of Orientalism coming from the works of European Victorian era scholars. This book helps us see what for many of us is almost totally invisible, which is how white supremacist ideologies are normalized in these kinds of expressions of Buddhism. In other words, what white supremacy is, is an invisible standard of normality for many white Buddhists in North America. The introduction of this book starts by defining some key terms and concepts. Firstly, Joseph Shia talks about different ways of defining what white supremacy is. Shia uses a definition by Laurie Pierce, who defines white supremacy as the conscious or unconscious promotion and advancement of the beliefs, practices, values, and ideals of Euro-American white culture, especially when those cultural values are represented as normal. So this definition of white supremacy goes beyond what a lot of people out in the public arena might think of as white supremacy or racism. It's not just conscious or deliberate acts of racism or discrimination. 
Instead, it goes beyond this to also include larger kinds of systemic or institutional racism. So it's about learning to see racism or the implication of whiteness in political, economic, social, and religious aspects of life. Joseph Shia says that sometimes white people think that because they lead a spiritual or ethical life, or they see themselves as liberal or radical politically, that they've abandoned racism themselves. But it can be hard for a lot of people, and probably for most white people, to see how the communities and institutions they operate in are formed by or are reflecting racial hierarchies. So in this chapter, Joseph Shea is helping us to think about how whiteness is so entrenched in our lives and societies that it's just what seems normal. At least that's especially the case for white people who benefit from that kind of so-called normalness. It's the most difficult for white people to see this, of course. I want to draw your attention to something that Shia says in the introduction here, which is that whiteness isn't totally equated with white people, and that of course there are lots of different kinds of white people. Some white people really have divested from the privileges that come with whiteness. And also, the privilege of being white is affected by other things like class, sexual orientation, or gender. If you've heard the term intersectionality, that's what this is about. There are so many factors that all intersect to affect how we are able to access power in the world. So the definition of whiteness, Joseph Shea says, is dynamic and context-specific. In this introductory chapter, Joseph Shia gives us a good, concise discussion of different sociological theories of race and a discussion of how race is related, according to different theorists, to ethnicity, class, nationality, or religion. He talks about how race started to be considered a social category rather than a biological one. But he points out that even many of these theories of race are themselves based on the assimilation of European immigrants into American culture, rather than on the experiences of African Americans, Native Americans, Latinx Americans, or Asian Americans. So that means that these sociological theories of race weren't taking into account the special circumstances of those populations. Like, for example, the extermination of Native peoples the enslavement of African peoples, or the racial exclusion policies of Asian peoples in North America. So what he's talking about in this section of his introduction is how what are called ethnicity models of race are actually based on the ideology of white supremacy, such that Americans of different racial or ethnic backgrounds are in lots of ways judged against a normative standard of European American culture and values. Joseph Chia then goes on to talk about another theory called racial formation. According to this model, race is a social construct that has the political and other consequences of grouping people into hierarchical categories. And he then provides an overview of how race has been neglected in the study of American Buddhism, followed by an overview of how the book is laid out.
Now let's take a look at chapter three, which is called Adaptation of Vipassana Meditation by Convert Buddhists and Sympathizers. This chapter asks how the type of Buddhist practice called Vipassana meditation, which is sometimes also called insight meditation, was adapted by Westerners to the Western context. In this chapter, he'll talk about how meditation is appropriated in North America from the perspective of racial rearticulation, which is a concept taken from racial formation theory. Racial rearticulation means taking beliefs and practices from another religious tradition and giving them new meanings based on one's own culture, but doing this specifically in a way that maintains or even strengthens the dominant system of racial dominance or hegemony in that new culture. Racial rearticulation by definition could only be done by those who are in a position of some power in some way. But also rearticulation, which you might hear about using the word appropriation or reappropriation, it's not necessarily racially oriented. Sometimes it's more culturally oriented. Cultural appropriation, or using Joseph Shia's term cultural rearticulation, is about how we take or represent another religious tradition into our own tradition and make it familiar and meaningful in that new culture. This is different from racial rearticulation because in racial rearticulation, there's a power relationship. In the case of Buddhism, for example, this would mean adopting Buddhist practices specifically in ways that help preserve the system of racial dominance or that promote the racial projects of the Victorian era, which is exactly what happened in the early transmission of Buddhism into the West. But Joseph Shia points out in this chapter that cultural appropriation or cultural rearticulation is actually unavoidable when a foreign religious tradition moves into a new culture. There would be no other way to make it meaningful or understandable to the new culture without that process. In this chapter, he gives some examples of how this has happened in the history of Buddhism, as for example, when Buddhism moved from India to China a long time ago, and it had to be reinterpreted in ways that made sense to the Chinese communities at the time, or also when it moved into Burma. Actually, every time Buddhism has moved into a new culture, cultural rearticulation has had to take place. But what he's saying in this chapter is that these examples in the earlier history of Buddhism's traveling around the world are okay to describe as cultural rearticulation, because race as a concept didn't even exist until around the 16th century in Europe. But after that, and in European and American examples especially, we do start to see a lot of examples of racial rearticulation of Asian Buddhism by Westerners. I want to say also, though, that Joseph Xia does mention in this chapter a few ways that the move of Buddhist practices into North America is cultural and not racial. Some examples of this are how North American Buddhists emphasize democratic values in governance, the equality of men and women in meditation centers, and women in positions of authority. Those are actually subversive acts that challenge the patriarchal assumptions of Asian Buddhist practices. So this chapter and this book is looking at both cultural and racial forms of reappropriation. And why this is important is that so few scholars in Buddhist studies pay attention to this difference. And they're therefore actually really blind to how sometimes the appropriation of Buddhism is actually promoting a racial ideology of white supremacy. 
In this chapter, Joseph Shea gives us some examples of early anthropologists who studied Buddhist communities in Burma, such as Spiro, who wrote a lot about Burmese Buddhism without seeming to even take seriously what Burmese people thought or knew. This is an example of racial rearticulation, because Spiro presented Burmese religious practice totally from a Western anthropologist's perspective. He assumed that he knew about Buddhism, that what he knew about Buddhism was of more value than what his Burmese informants knew. Among other things, this kind of approach privileges a certain text-focused understanding of what counts as real Buddhism, and it dismisses the -the on-the-ground experiences of actual Buddhist people as somehow superstition rather than real or authentic religion. This kind of attitude is rooted in the Western dominance of the rational enlightenment model of religion. And under this model, there's no place for supernatural beings in Buddhism, even though these are one of the most important parts of Buddhism for many Buddhists in Asia. So it's part of the modernist assumption of Buddhism to think of meditation, for example, as being separate from ritual or the belief in supernatural beings. Joseph Shia also then tells us more about how meditation specifically has been culturally rearticulated by white North American Buddhists by linking meditation to Western psychology and psychotherapy. I'm sure that many of you are familiar with this kind of presentation of Buddhism. This is one of the most conspicuous examples of a modernist approach to North American Buddhism in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. But what's less conspicuous to many of us is how whiteness operates in that model. Joseph Shia suggests that linking meditation so tightly to Western psychology and psychotherapy is a way of promoting a particularly Western notion of the person as an autonomous self. I'll quote Shia here. He says, When modernist Buddhists focus on a particular practice of meditation, to the exclusion of the doctrinal and devotional aspects found in so-called ethnic Buddhism, they may have rejected the traditional Eastern concept of the self as the nexus of social relation. So some of what we see in North American Buddhism is the commercialization of certain aspects of Buddhism, such as a limited set of certain kinds of meditation practices, without any reference to their Asian sources or without any of the original context of beliefs and practices that go along with meditation in an Asian context. Meditation is now so embedded in secular North American culture that it's not understood to have any religious context at all. Joseph Shea is suggesting in this book that this is a sign of the cultural power of whiteness operating at social and structural levels. Let's look a little bit more closely at how he says this happens. A good example of this is the question of how to categorize different kinds of North American Buddhism, which is essentially about who gets to say what real Buddhism is. A lot of meditators in North America think of real Buddhism as being about pure meditation and not about rituals, devotional practices, cosmological systems, or other aspects of so-called ethnic Buddhism. 
Those things are sometimes even referred to as the cultural baggage of immigrant Buddhists. So what does this mean? Although so many people talk like this without even realizing what they're saying, it means that those who do only meditation, who are primarily white in North America, they are the ones who have the authority to say what counts as real Buddhism. Whereas those who do all the other practices of Buddhism too, alongside meditation maybe, and who are primarily not white in North America, are doing a kind of Buddhism that is wrong or soiled by baggage, right? Joseph Shia continues by going into the question of how to refer to the different kinds of Buddhists or Buddhism in North America. There's American Buddhism, convert Buddhism, immigrant Buddhism, heritage Buddhism, ethnic Buddhism. What do these terms really say? He quotes the scholar named Wako Shannon Hickey, who says that ethnic Buddhism is a racial signifier in that the term ethnic in ethnic Buddhism is applied only to people of color. The assumption is that whiteness is the norm against which ethnic is measured, and this is another example of unconscious white privilege. The term American Buddhism is also sometimes laden with an ideology of white supremacy, because until recently the word American in American Buddhism almost always referred to white people or Euro-Americans. So in Joseph Shea's words, this is the cultural power of whiteness. It does not need to name itself explicitly to make its presence felt. Even newly arrived Asian immigrants have internalized the image of what real Americans ought to look like. The chapter concludes with a summary of its arguments. It's not always that easy to tease out whether something is cultural or racial rearticulation. But the problem in North America is that race has been a dominant factor of all aspects of life and policies for so long, and it's so naturalized that sometimes it can take time to see it clearly.
This episode of Footnotes was produced by Francis Garrett with sound editing by Jesse Witte. The Footnotes series was created at the University of Toronto in Canada with support from eCampus Ontario.